Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squad, the podcast devoted to creating and optimizing a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. I'm your host, Derek Teslaw, Sergeant for Sheriff's Department of California. And on the show, I talk to a variety of experts in a variety of fields looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. Purpose of this podcast is to be the uh, test, uh, crash test dummy of sorts of how to make myself happier and healthier so that I can tackle this challenging career with energy and focus. The entire purpose of this podcast is to make myself better, but of course, then not just to keep it to myself, but to share it with you, share with working, share with not, etc. Now, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes and links to the, uh, our guests' information by going to squadron.net. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squadron. At the end of the show, I'll tell you how you can help support the show by being a Patreon of the show by uh, uh, providing a donation of your choice of your amount, uh, but I'll get more to that in the show. However, at the upfront, I want to thank our uh, sponsors for this episode uh, through Patreon, Red Man's, Kyle Campbell, Matt Kenny, Baxter, Blair Confidence, a couple of people who wish to remain anonymous. Appreciate you for your support. Uh, and uh, our guest today, uh, this is a really great episode, if I do say so myself. Um, no, this is an episode where, uh, one of those things where I, I, I had an idea of where I wanted to take the conversation. I had my questions. I, I knew where I wanted to go with it. But uh, interacting with a guest, we took it in a, uh, a little bit of a different direction. And my guest today is uh, Kevin Briggs. Kevin, uh, I should say Sergeant Kevin Briggs, uh, now retired. Uh, Kevin was a member of the Highway Patrol for over 20 years and Kevin is the subject of one of the most famous photos of modern law enforcement. And his uh, nickname is Guardian of the Golden Gate. That Golden Gate being, of course, the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, and I'll put, the sh- I'll put the photo in the show notes. But uh, the photo I'm describing is Kevin when he was he's still a sergeant with Highway Patrol. And he was responsible for patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge. And as you might be aware, the Golden Gate Bridge is uh, a, a popular spot for suicide. And it was not uncommon for him to encounter people through his trials uh, or through his patrols who were going through uh, a crisis moment. And um, it was not uncommon for him to both speak with them uh, and then they would jump, but also respond after the fact. And the photo that he was made famous uh, was that, sorry, I'm not laughing at the seriousness of this topic. I'm laughing at my brand new puppy in the background who all of a sudden decided to get wound up once he heard me talking. So please bear with the whining of the dog while I talk about a very serious topic. Uh, Kevin, was, Kevin, there's a photo of Kevin talking to a, a despondent uh, male who's standing on the edge of the bridge. I mean, he just inches away from taking a step or slipping and uh, falling to his death. And uh, Kevin is leaning over the rail talking to him. And he gets him to eventually come back over and the subject, the other subject in that photo, his name I think is also Kevin, I forget his last name, but he has now gone on to be a uh, suicide prevention advocate and someone who's really carried the torch for suicide prevention. And it's because Kevin intervened and saved his life. And it's not the only time that Kevin has done that. Kevin has done that <clears throat> numerous times in his career. Um, he's a United States Army veteran. Uh, he uh, was a correctional officer in California for the CDC before he joined the Highway Patrol in 1990, uh, motor officer for many years. He's a graduate of the FBI's crisis negotiation team, and he now speaks on crisis management, leadership skills, suicide prevention, and intervention. And that's what we came to talk about today, uh, was about his story of, of protecting people through intervening in that moment of crisis and how we can relate that to um, our work in law enforcement, not only obviously from the calls for service, but to our partner. Uh, at the time that Kevin and I had this conversation, uh, two, both, two agencies that I border, uh, both, um, uh, both agencies that I know people at uh, experienced suicide. Or uh, One was a su- successful suicide of a young officer. The other was a suicide attempt uh, at the station. And at the time that we uh, we recorded this, that was those two events were like a week old, uh, or a couple weeks old, in some, in one case. So it was fresh on my mind this idea of intervening with our partners and being aware of the things, the triggers, uh, the warning signs. And I thought it was a good time to have Kevin on to talk about those things. Now, Kevin, 
like I say, we I had my idea of what I wanted to talk about, but Kevin really goes into his own personal story too. And this story, this this conversation was really started about suicide intervention, and it became about resilience again. And that's a common theme on the show because we can never have too much of it. I need more of it myself. I'm working on it. But Kevin uh, has the resilience uh, that he's able, and, and because he's resilient, he was able to help other people. And of course, we can't help others if we can't help ourselves. Can, uh, Kevin's a cancer survivor. He's got uh, his own uh, heart issues. Uh, he struggled with a divorce, his own PTSD and depression, and he talks about it very openly. Um, and he's a, he's a survivor of a suicide loss himself. And he, he's very open and honest about uh, his own struggles and what uh, some things the job has done to him, some things that life has done to him. He's been featured in The New Yorker, Men's Health Magazine, NPR, Steve Harvey Show, People Magazine. Uh, and he's got a great TED, TED Talk great TED Talk that I'm going to link in uh, in the show. I think it's actually, uh, for the supervisors out there, it's a great one to play in briefing, and it's a great one to stoke a conversation. So enjoy this conversation with Kevin Briggs, uh, the guardian of the Golden Gate. Kevin Briggs, welcome to the squad room. Thanks for being here. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. You have one of the most famous pictures uh, in law enforcement, I think, which is on our website now, uh, accompanying this episode, so people can check that out. And... Um, You've been someone who I've followed for quite some time just by the sheer magnitude of the impact you've been able to have in the job you had. But before we get to a lot of that, I want to go through the kind of the story of how, not just story, but I mean like give your history, give your bona fides, let people know that, you know, you're, you're one of them for those of us who are listening who are first responders. Sure, sure. Well, right out of high school, 1981, quite some time ago, I went into the Army and uh, – in my second year in the Army, I was in Germany, and I was diagnosed with cancer, testicular cancer. So that, of course, takes a heavy toll on you. Chemotherapy, I had three operations and such, and I was sent back to the United, uh, United States back here where I'm from in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I went through all through the chemo and the operations and such, made it through it, and then I started working in corrections. I worked at San Quentin for a while. And in 1990, then I applied and was accepted for the California Highway Patrol. So I went through their academy. And uh, that was my career all the way up until just November of 2013 when I retired and formed this Pivotal Points organization. Mm -hmm. But when I was with the Highway Patrol, uh, I started working on the Golden Gate Bridge in about 1994 and really liked it. But I didn't have a clue of of the dark side of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you eventually, when you retired, you were a sergeant. You were a motor sergeant, correct? Correct, I was. Okay. So you said you're from the Bay Area. Did you have you done your entire career with CHP in the Bay Area? There. Yes, there's a, a place called Hayward, California, which is just south of Oakland. I started there, and then actually that's where I promoted to in 2008, and I worked my way back to Marin County. So if folks don't know, Marin County connects to San Francisco via the Golden Gate Bridge. So that's where you ended up with probably the most uh, impactful point, point in your career was when you were assigned to the Golden Gate Bridge. Your nickname and the title of your book is Guardian of the Golden Gate. Um, that's something that when your name, when you Google your name, that comes up consistently with your name. Explain that nickname uh, that title, it's more of a title than a nickname, but how did you get that and, and, and how, how and why? Uh, I had done a few media, uh, events throughout my career. And one was the New Yorker magazine, which was some time ago. Um, back in 2012, Yahoo news contacted me for an interview. They wanted to come to the office and talk with me for a bit. I thought it would just be five, 10 minutes, half hour or something. It turned out to be uh, multiple hours, maybe six hours or something spent with them. And we put a GoPro on the motorcycle and we went down to the bridge and went into my locker room, went to my office, all over. Well, I didn't think anything of it. And it came out in December 2012. And I generally take that month off because uh, I have a lot of time built up and I like the holidays. So I started getting all these phone calls from my office. Say, hey, man, you're, you're getting a lot of calls in requesting you to come and speak and, and these different things. And I had no idea what they were talking about. Well, this Yahoo News segment, it was six minutes long. It came out, and that's they called it Guardian of the Golden Gate, and that's where that came from. 
So that stuck kind of with it. Okay. But obviously that more than just the guardian, I mean, there was a reason behind that. So, so how did you come into that? Well, that's because I, I got into this um, negotiations for lack of a, a better term. That's really what it's called mm-hmm. uh, with suicidal folks up on the golden gate bridge. And if people don't know about it, you know, we lose sometimes up to 60 people a year jump off of that bridge. Now, if we are able to contact them before that, whether they're in the parking lots or on the sidewalk or actually over the rail, the majority of the time we can help them. We can get them back over or, or, you know, into the hospital and get them some help. So um, that's the biggest thing, you know, and, and we have doubled that number that we take for mental health evaluations. So it's it's continually occurring down there, unfortunately. But I would handle four to six cases a month of this. This is too, you started this, you say back in 94, this is before crisis intervention training, which many officers and many departments go through now. This was um, this idea of negotiating these people off of the bridge. That's That was something, was, did you go back to the bridge uh, or did you go to the bridge with this intent or was this something that was kind of thrust upon you by the geographic circumstances of where you were assigned? Exactly. Number two, what you said there, because I, I liked working down at the bridge and, uh, being on the motorcycle, it was very easy for me to go into San Francisco and park anywhere. We know big cities and, and the parking issues. Mm-hmm. So I liked working down there, but I didn't have a clue. Nobody told me about how many people actually would try and, you know, attempt to jump from this bridge and the problems they're having with the suicides down there. So I had no training in this zero. And I tell folks, I go, this was very much a disservice to me, but also very much a disservice to those people who were contemplating suicide. So I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to work down there. I started doing my own research on this to find out how can I help these folks? I had the empathy, you know, I wanted to do the job. I just didn't have the skills more that I, that I thought that I needed. Mm -hmm. So I started doing uh, a lot more research on this to find out what was their mindset most of the time and how to better my active listening skills, which is huge. So after that, I was able to go through that CIT course some years later. And then eventually towards the end of my career, I went through the FBI crisis negotiation course, which was just awesome. You know, it's something, it's a theme in law enforcement to me that it always strikes me, uh, just the, the pure happenstance of the job, right? Um, that whether it's your, whether, you know, I'm a patrol sergeant too, I'm never going to ride a bike, that's crazy. But, <laughs> but you know, the happenstance of whether it's your shift or my shift, uh, whether it's the front end of the week or the back end of the week, or it's five minutes after the end of my shift and the next guy comes on, where these things can happen where your ability to intercede in someone's life, hopefully usually in a positive way, um, but it extends to these interactions with people who are in crisis all the way through to deadly force situations where it's just, it is in a lot of times just dumb luck of who's on duty and, and whether you are going to be the one called to that or is it going to be your partner and you're at home already. You know what I mean? Uh, oh, I I know I can give you a perfect example of please. that photograph that you're talking about. Yeah, with the African American man over the rail. Yep, I was actually sitting in a Starbucks in Sausalito, which is just a, a couple of miles from the bridge. You know, I'm right there, real close, and I'm sitting with a friend of mine, my beat partner, and we received the call. We're both on the motorcycles, and uh, I had done some. Let's see, he had done something for me. Some handled a call sometime the other week, the week prior. So I told him, hey, I'll take this call for you, no problem. So we both ride up there, and I handle the call, and that's when the picture was taken, and <laughs> so happenstance kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's just always, it's it's just such a thing, and, and I think there's obviously is the, we have to be prepared for anything, and as a result, we also um, can sometimes feel overwhelmed by it, you know, also the fact that we have to be ready at this for anything from crisis intervention on up. But that photo really, I mean, in hindsight now, and we'll get more into the things you've done and the themes of the people you've talked to, but going to that photo, because he has, he, that photo is someone you, who you saved, who came back over the rail and has now become uh, an advocate for mental health uh, intervention and um, 
and, and going out there and really saying it's not worth it. He's so glad that he, he didn't end up, you know. Right. Um, there, so that photo, though, then also, I mean, obviously that interception with you changed his life, but it changed yours, too. That You got a lot of attention from that, and you've really, this has become a mission for you as a result of not only having this uh, skill set, but now this platform. And this platform to, to speak to people that was given to you, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but that platform was, was started via this photo and Yahoo, that Yahoo News story, right? Absolutely correct. So right. here's a question I have for you that's not really related to that, but what was it? Try, try to, I'm trying to phrase this correctly, but um, were you able to recognize that confluence of platform and message when it occurred? And uh, and why did you decide to jump on that? You know, when this occurred, I I saw the photo sometime later. Mm-hmm. Um, it came from the paper, and and my lieutenant actually had it and cut it out and showed us all. And I didn't really think twice about it. Yeah, whatever. I you know I'm here to do my job. I'm not here to do press stuff and all that. Um, it wasn't until the Yahoo News segment came out when I started getting all these calls, and one of the calls was to do a TED talk. And if folks don't know what a TED Talk is, which I will admit, I really didn't know what they were so much, but they're very, very popular. And it's technology, entertainment and design. And I was asked to do a TED Talk. And I think it's they pick 50 people uh, a year to do one of these. There's TEDx's. They can have them in cities and they're they're popular also. But there's one TED Talk, one TED presentation every year. So I was asked to do a TED Talk. And I said, I don't know if I should do this. I asked a mentor of mine. He goes, are you crazy? What are you doing? Go, you call him right back right now. So, okay. A lot of preparation. And they flew me up to Vancouver uh, in Canada. And I did the TED Talk. And uh, it, I, I was semi-pleased with it. I still haven't watched it fully. I hate watching myself. I just, ah, I always find, oh, why'd you do this? Still, why'd you do that? I still haven't watched it. But that's where it really launched from, from that, that TED Talk. And then I was asked to write a book and movie rights and these different things. But what I want to convey to people, and I, I tell uh, negotiators and things, is I, I really preach the the ego part of this, is to not to have the ego. Because it doesn't matter if Kevin Briggs is there talking to someone else or whoever else. I want who can that person build rapport with. So this is not... Now, back then, every time was it the Kevin Briggs show, it's about the people that were helping. That's the biggest thing. That uh, that TED Talk, and we'll, we'll post it uh, a link to it in the show notes too, because I watched it again uh, last night. Just you know, it's in preparation, and um, you know, it's it's impressive and good on you. I'm glad your mentor pushed you to do it because that becomes such a huge platform, and for for getting this stuff out there and, and reaching people. But um, you know. You've talked. You, I think you, it's the estimated that you've helped save and intervene in over 200 attempted suicides or potential suicide uh, attempts from jumping off the bridge. So you must have picked up on some of the themes of the people that you were talking to, the the things that brought them to that point. Can you run through some of those? Because I think we'll connect it back to law enforcement here in just a minute. You know the the biggest the three that I saw 99 percent of the time was folks felt like they're a burden to their families uh, if they were taking a prescription medicine for a mental illness they stopped it a month or so prior that's a real big one you know those two plus they suffered from a mental illness whether that's diagnosed or not but those those three were the big ones the burden one because um, I've heard you mention that elsewhere is one I think that you know we'll bring this back to to, to to depression and compassion fatigue and cops, but the burden one to me seems to be the one that when I hear about cops trying to uh, commit suicide or succeeding, it's that burden so much. And maybe it's the undiagnosed mental health issues as well. But um, you, you've given talks on compassion fatigue too. And again, it's something I'm going to link to uh, here in the show, but we've touched on it. Uh, on the show in other areas, but give me your definition of, of compassion fatigue, because I think we're going to, again, we'll tie this idea of depression and suicide back to the job that we do. You know, I, I look at it as simply you're burnt out from having to try and help so many people all the time. 
And in law enforcement or first responders, we give, 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 but we fail to see what's going on with ourselves and our families. And that's where the issues come in. But it's, it's you're seeing so much stuff, and sometimes you can't do anything about it. We'd look at the moral injury or something. But it's all the things that you have seen and your empathy, and you just, you just get wore out. You get emptied. Mm-hmm. Is that something – I mean, having gone through the CIT and the FBI course and the, you know, the being called the guardian of the gate, did you experience that yourself at some point, or were you able to stave that off? You know, I – I think I was able to to get through it, but when I did lose someone, it it did take a toll. You know, I was I'd be very upset. I remember tearing up, and it's something as law enforcement that uh, no, that you know doesn't happen. We're the tough guys; we handle it. I was in the military. I jumped out of planes. I worked at San Quentin, and then I'm this the motor sergeant. But I got to tell you, if you have any empathy at all, and you look into those people's eyes, and whether they shoot themselves in the head or whatever they did, that second before that they go. It's just very, very tragic. For a, for a supervisor, as you were, when I mean, you weren't the only one responding to these calls. You had uh, partners, uh, officers who worked for, for and with you who were also experiencing these things. What was your uh, what what made the hair on the back of your neck stand up when one of your officers had to deal with this and you were sensing that there wasn't there was something off in their ability to cope? And not that it's wrong. That, that, that makes it sound like it was wrong. But, I mean, that their response wasn't the healthiest. Right. Well, I can tell you what I would do as learning off of all of this for, for many years is if an officer was talking to someone and that individual jumped, then that officer's to me, he's done for the day or she is done for the day. And they don't go down to the docks to see the body because that kind of amplifies what I call a failure, it's not a failure, but what I call it as, you know, we, we, we didn't mess up deep down. I know that this is like a stage four cancer for, for these folks to get them up there. We need to get to folks long before that, but I don't want to emphasize anything negative with this officer. So in checking with them and, and going through some of the deals, okay, you know, you may get the night sweats, you may feel um, loneliness yourself, all these different things. Your lowered concentration level. There's a whole a whole list of of compassion fatigue deals that they can feel anxiety and, and powerless against all this. And would you just so, be very abrupt with them and just lay this out? You might feel this, 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 this. Yes, yeah. and I think that's that's how to do this because a lot of times they don't, don't know if it's younger folks working down there that haven't been trained. Then they go through this and they think they can handle it all, but really it's going to boil up on you. It may take a little bit, but you know it's it can take a heavy, heavy toll on you. Do you find that um, comparing your veteran officers to your newer officers was there a, a higher risk with the time on, or did the head the older officers learn to maybe manage it different? Is there or is there a generational difference between how that stress is handled? I think the older officers handled it a little better, but they also would hide their signs of it, of it also. So, you know, I would like to have trainings on this to show folks go right through the cognitive, the behavioral, even the spiritual deal all about these. And just so they have a heads up. And then, of course, we have the uh, employee assistance program, the EAP, mm-hmm. which which is great. I had a couple officers go through that and it really, really helped them. And that's what I tell folks is, you know, I don't want to lose these folks to stress what they saw on the bridge or throughout their career. So if we give them some time to empty out that that baggage, those all those bricks on their back, then we have a much better chance of getting those officers back. They want to do a good job. It's just a matter of processing everything they've been through. Yeah, I you know the compassion fatigue to me it sets in in, in some ways and it's it's often um, very subversive, right? And it starts with small things, and it may not be that you. I think a lot of it to me comes out as this quote unquote salty officer, right? The, the, they're just, they've, you've been there and you've done everything or you've seen that, but then that lack of, of compassion and caring is, is gone. You know, it's maxed out. And I think often we, um, our rebuttal or our, our defense mechanism to it is, well, like you said earlier, this idea of we're tough and we build a wall and we don't respond, you know, we don't physically, uh, 
emotionally respond to the stimuli given to us by people. But at the same time, this job has to have some empathy and compassion to it. Otherwise, we're not doing as good a job as we could be, and we're probably making mistakes. I'm prophesizing at this point, but, but I think... But I think oh, you're absolutely correct. Well, but yeah, so, you know, it comes up in little ways, and um, it's, it's really uh, sneaky, you know, how it goes. You go from... And I think as a supervisor now, I see it because I hear it more. I hear officers talk, but then I hear them say things that, oh, I've thought that too, you know, in terms of, uh, of, of belittle, not belittling victims to their face, but, you know, justifying why they were a victim while they left their car unlocked. They deserved to have their car broken into, or, you know, she came back to him after, after he beat, gave her a black eye the first times, you know, so it's not my fault. She's not that, that she's getting beat up. Well, it's not your fault, of course, anyway, but that really prohibits our ability to build empathy for people. And that eventually I think, and please, I'd love your input on this, that, that, that inability to build empathy for other people transfers to your partners and eventually then to yourself. And you can't build empathy and compassion for yourself. What do you think about that? I think you are absolutely correct. And what happens is too, is you take that home and now you stop caring about things at home in your home life, you know, and, and of course I've seen it just as you have, I'll see officers that have said, you know, just, just put a diving board on the bridge. Let them all jump. Why are we saving them? Well, you know, we're going to talk about that for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's sometimes we make light of things because we see so much and you handle so much. But if you're really serious about that, then that empathy and that lack of caring is huge. We need to really focus on that. I think mm-hmm. maybe there's some time off needed. Um, the folks that have, that I have dealt with said are very they're they're uh, quite sensitive actually, so I would rather have a counselor sit with them for a while. And we have a job to do. We we all have this job to do. It's a tough job. You see a lot. You do a lot. It can take an effect. And if we don't realize that, you know, you might not make it to retirement. It used to be years ago we lived uh, five years or so after when we retire. And and most of us died after that. And I'm still getting calls and still having friends that are losing their life to suicide just a couple of years after retirement. You know, so we need to build up our reserves, not only to be functional while we're working, but to be able to turn that off and have this balance in life to where we can come home and be a loving partner, be loving parents. So there's a, a lot to this. So one of the things that I, goals of the show is, and of course, to tease out the things that people find uh, have had success with that I can try to apply or that people can try to apply their own life that might speak to them. You know, 23 years in law enforcement, in the military, you've done all these things with people in their, I mean, in the worst moments of their life, you know, absolute crises. Uh, what are the things you have done uh, to help, as you said earlier, like maybe stave off the the, the compassion fatigue and have a healthy lifestyle or have you, or, or did you struggle with it all entirely? You know, I did struggle with it and I was the one that, okay, just suck it up. But uh, I think what helped me tremendously was the fact that I helped more people than I lost. And I don't like to use the word save. I mean, you say it cause we can't find another word for it, but, but I don't think I saved folks. I was there on a very dark day for them and maybe a con, it and helping them. But, and that's what I tell officers to look at. Yeah, we lost one. It's going to hurt. It's going to sting because we think that a, a small portion of us feels that we failed, but look at the greater good and look at the good that you would do if you take some time off and get some help if you need it and then come back. You know, we had, a, I had a, a female officer who lost an individual and it just really hit her hard. It was a young Asian woman that jumped on her and it wasn't a female thing for this female officer, anything like that. You know, she, it was just a human ordeal. So I gave her some time off. My captain was uh, very, very good about doing these, these officer issues where compassion fatigue or, you know, the amount of stress that can happen with this. So we gave her some time off and now she's back and she's doing a great job. She could have easily gone out on stress based on what she's seen all throughout her career so we'd lose a good officer and, you know, a, a person can be greatly affected by all this. 
So by giving her some time off, going through EAP, giving that a chance to work and sit in, boom, she's back and doing a great job. So I was the typical one. Mental illness is a weakness. It can't happen to me. Um, all these different things that, that I thought that uh, I was completely wrong about. You know, I suffer from depression. I'm on two different meds now. But we're working through it. And that's what I tell folks. I'm standing here before you to let you know this stuff is real. It can happen. So let's try to handle it the best that we can. If you don't mind sharing a little bit about that, do you think um, it was that, that the depression that you got, that you're getting treatment for was uh, you were predisposed to, or was it environmental and as a result of some of these things? I think it's, it's a combination. Okay. I really do. Uh, I lost my grandfather to suicide. So maybe that's part of it there. I've never been suicidal, but I found myself and, and when I talk to law enforcement people, they come up to me and, and afterwards and tell me, thank you, because I'm experiencing some of that same thing. But I tell them I could go to work and function at a hundred percent. I'm fantastic. But when I came home, I could sit on the couch for days at a time and do nothing mm-hmm. because you always need to be at your top level when you're working. Yep. You're always high. The adrenaline's high and you're always up when you come home. Hey, now you can relax and you can let your guard down a bit and everything else. Well, I found that mine was just the high and and extreme high and low of all of that. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to finally realize this and went to my doctor and I did a little test of PHQ-9, personal health questionnaire 9, and uh, kind of flunked it, I suppose. So he came in and and tells me, he goes, Kevin, you have depression. How, How do you feel about that? What do you mean? How do I feel about that? It's, it's terrible. What are you talking about? So uh, as of current, I'm on a couple of different meds for that. And it seems to be working. I'm out and about. I'm doing things. I'm happy. So I've completely changed my tune on a lot of different things as, I, as I've gotten older. What, what other things can I ask? That and, you know, the ability to – I used to be that one. To say, just put a diving board up on that bridge. Who cares? But when you go and you experience it, or the movie The Bridge that many people know about, um, I think is is horrible personally to film someone jumping off of that bridge. Now, if you've never seen it and you've never been around anything like that, it, it may be interesting to you. But as someone who has looked into the eyes of those people right there, just a couple of feet away, and then having them jump, it's absolutely horrible. So. You know, I've changed my tune on a lot of different things. It's one of those, it's a, you know, there's not that many places in the U.S. where uh, you have that interaction where it's face-to-face in the moments before uh, a death. You know, all cops who've got any amount of time on have been to scenes of a completed suicide. You know, and I can't, I couldn't tell you how many I've been to at this point, from hangings to gunshot wounds to overdoses to everything else. I've had one experience uh with someone in that state on a bridge. Uh, and I even questioned whether they were suicidal or just high as all get, as all get out. Right. So it wasn't to me a true experience of that, that you're talking about. But like, I think you're making an important point that there's a difference between interacting with someone, looking them in the eye, hearing their story, learning their name, learning about their family as you're trying to negotiate this off. And then them completing the act versus the response after the fact, you know, Yes, I think it's quite – that's why I don't like officers to go down and see the body or even handle the report. Somebody else is going to handle the report after that. Mm-hmm. You're now just a witness, and I think that helps with, with their recovery on this. Um, and I, I can tell you what happened with me on, on a gentleman that I lost on July 22nd of 2013. We were talking to him for an hour, and he was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol or anything else. And after an hour, he just went. You know, He jumped. And, uh, and then right after that, we had another one, but I called the family. They were back in New Jersey that night and spoke with them for a while. And the next day we were going to talk. And here's where the, the point comes in is I received a call at the office from a man and I thought it was a family member, but it wasn't, it was their rabbi. And we were talking for a bit and actually I became emotional on the phone and he says, Kevin, do you see how you are right now? And I go, well, yeah, you know. And he goes, if you ever stop feeling how you do right now, get the hell out of the business because you're no good to anyone. <laughs> so even though you're going through this and it hurts and it sucks and you feel like you failed, um, 
that's the empathy that we have. And and that's, you know, he had this point. This rabbi actually worked with police on doing notifications. So he was he was familiar with this type of work. You touched, too, on that hypervigilance roller coaster, you know, that uh, if you're familiar with Kevin Gilmartin's work, uh, uh, the book Emotional Survival yes. for Law Enforcement. But something we come back to, and I've, I think I've referenced, I've probably quoted that book in the last four episodes about that ebb and flow or crash really is a better way to describe it. And Josh Mons and I talked about it too, you know, quote he had of, he was at his tactical best when he was at his emotionally detached, at his most emotionally, at his most emotionally, emotionally detached. And that's in the army, but I totally get that from law enforcement, you know, from my experience. And uh, I'm at my best when I'm, yeah, not emotional. And then, but that, like you say, you bring that home. And eventually that's a downward spiral for relationships and for your health and your activity level and everything like that. So, you know, you, you've mentioned some of the warning signs in your employees. You developed uh, a model, and you call it the release model. And I was hoping we could go through that for, sure. for people who identify that a partner is struggling and, uh, and that they want to do something to help. What, what is the release model? It's a model that I came up with for people to recognize someone who who may be in trouble, mm-hmm. and and I'm talking trouble, um, just you know maybe they're not suicidal, maybe they're just having some bad mental health days, which we all do, but let's find out how can we contact them to make them feel at ease, and how can we talk to them to where they can open up without feeling embarrassed and ashamed. So, the release model is recognize, engage. Listen, empathy, accept, support, and encourage. And then I go through each one uh, and, you know, how we can do this. So I think it helps people have that courageous conversation just to find out. Uh, You just made two words, courageous conversation. Have you read that book? No, I haven't. It's it's a great book called Courageous Conversations um, that I recommend to people who, especially supervisors, who have to have these conversations. but so recognize we went through some of these things, maybe detachment, um, the compassion fatigue, you know, increasing um, missed days at work, uh, you know, increased sick days, injury leave. Um, you right. Know, you know, sp- I mean, all these sorry, goodbyes, all sorts of different things. If, yeah, and you don't, what product. are they saying goodbye? Yeah. Decrease productivity. And then you get to those things. Yeah. Saying goodbyes, giving things away, selling things off, uh, maybe making a major life decision. Uh, you know, like moving out of state or something, you know, um, right. Increased drug or alcohol use and, you know, yeah. anything like that. And then engage. That's the tough one for people. Um, getting the courage to talk to these people and to confront them. Um, do you have any tips on, on doing that? I mean, you say you're, you're very blunt with talking to them about these are the things you might experience, but once someone is in this experience, what, how do you intervene? Yeah. You know, to, to have the courage to do that, because there's some different routes. You could be one of those that say, you know what? I saw some of that stuff that was going on, those signs and symptoms, but I didn't think they'd do it. How often do we hear that? Mm, yeah. We hear that quite frequently. So to have the courage to come up and say, hey, you know, can, can I have a chat with you? Can we talk for a little bit? And not um, at a Starbucks, not at a coffee shop, a restaurant, somewhere where this person is at ease and can break down if they need to, if they want to, because that's what you're trying to find out is what's going on. Like I said, maybe they're not suicidal. Maybe they're just going through a really tough time. But we want to find out. We are our brother's keeper. So to ask them, you know, hey, can we sit down and chat for a bit? And then to let them know, hey, this is what I've seen. And going down the list, wow, you haven't been showing up to work when you're here. You really don't care. That that presenteeism kind of deal. And you know, I've heard you say a couple things that I've just I've had enough with everything. And and maybe you're giving a few things away. You just you're just not you. You're out of your normal, typical routine. And it's been for a little a bit of time now. So I just want to let you know that I'm here for you, that I care for you. I'd like to find out what what's going on. If you you know, if you can tell me. And then the, the listening part of that, I mean, someone. Someone finally, you know, opens up. They're willing. They they've gotten that invitation to open up about it, and now they're talking. And you talked about active listening earlier, but that seems to me that that is the other than the confronting it at the first part, the just ability to listen. 
And it sounds funny that listening is a skill, but what are the things, what are your tips on listening? My tips on listening are really open your ears. Don't, many times we are listening to respond. Let's try to get away from that. And you want to hear the full story of what's going on. So, you know, we, those minimal encouragers, when someone's talking to you, wow, is that right? Really? These little things that let them know that you're listening, that you're paying attention, but you're not interrupting them to where they're going to stop talking. Mm-hmm. Let them finish before we start talking. And in instances like this, we're not going to judge them. Wow. Or you know what you should have done or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Have you tried this is a better way of, of talking to folks if they have. But to be there for them and to summarize what's going on with them. Every so often, wow, so if I'm hearing you, this is what's going on in your life. Man, that's got to be tough. You know, normalizing their situation, I think, is critical. Wow, with all the stuff you've been through, you know, anybody would be thinking about what, what you're thinking about right now or, or maybe you know, attempting to do. Mm-hmm. That's just human nature. That's a lot of stress you got going on in your life. So that normalization is, is huge, I think. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think you're absolutely right, normalizing it. And then uh, empathy being the next one. How Explain, is there a difference to you between empathy and compassion? Uh, and how do you empathize? How do you normalize that and make it, make it empathetic? I think the, the easiest way to put this for empathy is get out of yourself for a little bit. Don't think about yourself, everything you're going to Put yourself in their shoes. That's that's what I try to do. Like, wow, that, that's that's really heavy stuff that you've been going through. How would you feel going through everything that they're going through? Put yourself in their shoes, and I think that really really helps. Then you can say, like, man, okay, that is really tough. You've been you're going through a lot of stuff. And then ex- I think if if we can do that, then that's a that's a big one. And then accept. What do you mean by accept? You know, accepting them for who they are. This is not a conversation where you're going to change them or you're going to tell me, well, you know what you should have done. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We're at this point now to where we need to help that person. The empathy, accepting them for who they are. You're not going to change them. Getting angry, telling them th- all these different things. Well, you know, the, how about have you tried this? Just to let them know, accepting them for who they are and let them know that you're, you're there for them. And I tell folks, you know what? Something like, you have my phone number. You can call me 24 hours a day. I might not be able to pick up the phone right then, but I'll get back with you as soon as I can. I'm here for you, and I'll, I'll help you through this the best that I can. Yeah, and there's other people here for you also. Yeah, I think that's important to remind them they're not alone. You know, there's a, one of my favorite quotes is from Plato who says, Be kind, for everyone is fighting a great battle. Uh, and that just means we, are, we all have our stuff, and we need Absolutely. to be kind with each other. We struggle. Sometimes we just need somebody there to listen. And that's, a, you know, a big one. Not interrupting, um, just listening to what is happening in your life. So then support is the next one in this release model. Support, obviously listening is a big avenue of support. But for people who aren't uh, in a position to, you know, refer them to a doctor, what are the things we can do to support each other? To really get down with them and say, you know what, here's a... For law enforcement, let's just say the Employee Assistance Program, EAP, here's the card. It's totally confidential. Um, maybe they don't know the path. Here, here's some information about whatever it is that they're going through. If it happens to be suicide, here's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Here's National Alliance on Mental Illness. Here's a number to call. There's a text line. If you don't want to talk, you can text 741-TALK. So there's different avenues. And just so they have a, a different gamut or multiple ways to connect with people. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really important. And then encourage. Is, it, is that just following up too and, and knowing that you're supporting them? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Encouraging them to get some help, to seek some help. It's not a weakness what you're going through right now. It's a human event, a human emotions. So let's try to work through this because if you don't handle this, you know, it can get worse. It can get a hell of a lot worse. And we don't want that. We care for you. We want you to be better. So I'm going to encourage you to do some research, look some things up. Here's some numbers. Here's some information for you. 
um, we are behind you on this. So don't think that you're going through this alone. That's excellent. You know, you touched on it in several different spots about how you're no stranger to these challenges yourself. You know, I mean, you you were quite young when you had that cancer, uh, early 20s. Yes. Right? Yeah. And um, you didn't mention it yet, but you mentioned it in one of your talks of three heart surgeries, is it? Right. Three heart surgeries and... And they're through my femoral artery, so not I didn't get busted in the, in the chest, but they put stents in my heart, and then they had to go back because it looked like one was messed up or something. But uh, I do have three stents in my heart, and that happened when I was, I, I believe, 48 years old, and I'm 54 now. So I've had that, that a couple of nasty motorcycle crashes where the concussions occurred, you know, so a number of factors. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, the I mean, you've, you've, you're being you've sought treatment for the depression, but it's that's not alone. All you do, what is the, what are the things you've done to build your own resilience? Like, well, do you have a daily routine, or is or you what do. is the practice? You really do. When I wake up, you know, I come up here, I, I get on my computer, I do some work, and then uh, maybe I'll meditate. And I never thought meditation was was anything uh, worthwhile when I first heard about it. You know, I, no, I wouldn't even want to be in the room when people talk. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some meditation in a training class or something. I got to go to the bathroom and then I'll just leave. (laughs) But I can tell you from research and from doing it, I've done a a couple of different kinds now, transcendental meditation, TM, and then just mindfulness. I've taken a course in that also. Um, I really enjoy it. It, it takes some effort to do a meditation. doesn't seem like it, but to take the time out for the day to do that. Uh It's really, really something. And for cops, you know, when we don't, like we, we go to a restaurant and you sit in the back with your back to the wall and you're always, you know, you're looking around. Well, my best meditations have been in a group of eight to ten people who I have never seen in my life, don't have a clue of who they are. And you close your eyes for half an hour. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very strange. And I can't, can't explain all of it, but it's deep, deep, deep stuff. But it works. If you can do it. And, you know, they're using it in schools now and, and for um, even gangs, mm-hmm. they haven't come in, and we're trying this this meditation, and it calms the memory or your mind, calms your mind, puts you at ease. You actually, if for whatever, you're happier. Mm-hmm. We have quite we have a significant amount of content on meditation and mindfulness, uh, but we don't have never. I don't think we've ever touched on TM. Can you tell people what TM is? Transcendental meditation. Like, what's unique about it? I guess. What's unique about it is. You're not going, um, you know, you're not sitting in a, in a weird, I'm going to say a weird pose, but a, a lotus pose or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you're given a mantra, so to speak, and you, you kind of just go through that mantra and it doesn't matter what's happening around you. You can do this in a car, not when you're driving, of course, but uh, you can do it sitting at your desk, which is closing your eyes and you just go through this for 20, 25 minutes and you'll have sometimes some busy once some busy meditations where you'll hear things all around, it doesn't matter. You go through it. Your mind will wander. It's okay. It's fine. So it's just a matter of being quiet, sitting there, letting the time lapse, repeating this mantra, uh, fast or slow, however you want to do it. And uh, it's just recognizing what's going on internally, what's going on around you, and just taking it all in. it sounds weird. It sounds funny. It sounds hokey, but I can tell you, as somebody who has done it, it's it's really really cool if you give it a chance. And then you mentioned you took a mindfulness class. Did you take that mindfulness based stress reduction, or what was the class you took? It was mindfulness. Actually, it was built around teachers and students. Hmm. Okay. And it's it's similar to TM, um, but mindfulness is just it's more of being where you are right then. And Present. and if you do that, how many of us are looking for our sunglasses for half an hour when actually they're on top of our head? <laughs> I mean, I've done that, but, you know, all the, these things, that, oh, where did I leave my keys? My kid, and you left them in the car or something. So being in the spot right then wherever you're at. My sensei, I, I took a keto for a while, a Japanese martial art, mm-hmm. and my sensei would always say, if you're washing dishes, you're washing dishes. Be in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do because we're always th- – thinking of things that we have to do. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to go here. 
and we forget a lot of things. Yeah, we've had uh, we just had uh, Lieutenant Richard Gerling on the show from uh, Hillsboro, Oregon, who's well known for his mindfulness work. He also has done a TED talk, and uh, MindfulBadge.org is his website, and he's his mission is to spread mindfulness to police officers and first responders all over. Um, and as a as a practitioner of of meditation myself, I, I'm with you. It's I, I don't have a great practice. It's spotty at best, but I emphasize that we call it a practice, not a perfection. Um, and that it's, right. it's just like anything else. You just got to practice at it and stay with it. But what have you, I always like to ask, um, when I talk to people who do meditate, what are your, what's your experience coming out of it? I mean, what do you think you get from it other than just peace and quiet for half an hour? I have high blood pressure, so it, it, it helps lower the blood pressure. Um, we all get bogged down. you I make a list of all the things that I need to do. And sometimes that list gets gets very big and you, and you get stressed out about it. Oh, I can only do this so much. Um, this will help you with that. Mm-hmm. It helps you. All right, calm down. Takes, you know, take these breaths, relax. And you go, okay. So we'll just pick a few to do today and, and this. So I think it, it helps you out tremendously with that, with your memory. It helps with that, help you recalling things. Um, there's just so many benefits to it, bringing your, your brain cells activated. They, they show more highlighted, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing something like this, there's a lot of research behind TM. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to, to try it, it's, it's really, really cool. But something along those lines, I tried yoga. Yoga wasn't for me. I know there's a lot of different ones. I only took one class one time, <laughs> but you know, you gotta do something. It's, it's almost like if you really enjoy fishing, okay, we'll go out and, and do that. Try the fishing. You know, something cause to get away, we got to have that balance in our life. That's the main thing is to get that balance. And that kind of goes into my next question of your uh, self-care triad um, that you've talked about before, too. And uh, there's the self-care, taking a, taking care of, of obviously, yourself uh, and doing those things for yourself. But one of those other things you talk about is professional help. And that doesn't necessarily mean a psychologist or a psychiatrist, though that's perfectly reasonable and part and part of that group but a theme that is throughout the show something that i have only recently learned in the last two three years is the importance of your team the people around you not just your spouse or your kids or your direct supervisor but the people that help you be better right um so you have this idea of this professional help who who is on your team right anyone in a profession that can help you just like you said so when i was taking a keto that instructor that sensei a professional, a help, a life coach, your yoga coach, a mentor, anybody around that. Because if you don't surround yourself with positive people, you know, there's a risk there. We always tell that to students. Surround yourself with the positive people, your positive friends. Those are the ones that's going to make you achieve more and go higher and, and achieve more goals and, and, you know, get you to attain different things. So anyone in a profession that can help you like you said not just a psychiatrist psychologist but a good mentor a people that that you would look up to that team that you said is so important and that goes right into the next part of that triad which uh yeah i mean go through that real quick if you would right so we have this the self-care on the top mm-hmm. which i believe should be up on the top that's the first one i need to be able to pull up my bootstraps myself whenever i can what do I need to do? So having high blood pressure, maybe that that um, meditation will help lower that. Do I need supplements, whatever that may be? Going to the gym, realizing, okay, you're all stressed out today. What can we do for that? Realizing that the balance of work and home life is huge. If I'm neglecting my two boys, realize that. Go, hey, you know, they're they're looking sad today. Because they didn't see me or whatever else. I need to spend time with them. we got to have that balance because typically law enforcement folks, first responders, we, like I said before, we give, 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 give. We're kind of work addicts. Well, we got to realize there's that home life too. You know, we're not leaving these folks behind. Mm-hmm. They're our crisis support. They're our life, really. So that's huge is that, that balance in the life, I think. It's really, really big to be able to recognize with that mindfulness what is going on at the present time. Mm-hmm. And then professional care and then the other part part. That support system, going out with your friends. Now, you know, they kind of go together, but that support system, being able to go out to coffee with some friends, 
and I get a laugh out of this when I talk to people. I go, why do you think women live longer than men? Because they go out and they're chatty Cathy's <laughs> and, you know, and they're not just dumping all the problems on their friends and looking for answers, but they go out and they talk and they listen to their friends and they're smiling and they're laughing. And that's what helps us get rid of, all, you know, a lot of stress in our life. It really does. That cortisol that builds up each and every day from sitting in traffic, mm -hmm. from having to deal with all these these people out there some, some, and you know, all the different things that we go through. So we need to get rid of that cortisol, whether that's through exercise, laughter. Laughter's huge. It really. You go to a comedy show, you come out feeling better. That's because you're getting rid of that cortisol. Mm -hmm. So you've written the book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, and you're out uh, speaking now. What is your mission? You're, you're retired from the CHP at this point, but what is your new mission? I just want to really spread the word, not only regarding mental illness, that you can get help and to break that stigma that it is a weakness, but to show folks that you can go through a tremendous amount and you know, look at the soldiers, a lot of soldiers coming back now, mm -hmm. like Josh Mance, they've been through a tremendous amount of stress and all, you know, all sorts of stuff has happened to them Whether they lost a limb, whatever else, but that you still have a life after that. And for cops we, you know, they go, if all your friends are just cops, you need to change that a little bit because when you retire they're they keep going on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's as with the highway patrol and I've asked cop after cop after cop, if all your friends are just in law enforcement, then when you retire, you're kind of just left out there and nobody calls you so much. So have friends other than what you are doing. I think anyone, that support system is critical. Yeah. And I think anyone who's had any sort of injury on duty where they have to take time off, you know, for any amount of time, even two, three weeks, it's a reminder that you're a cog in that wheel and that it, the train keeps moving without you. Uh, it does. You know, it really phone, does. The phone calls stop after week two, and then uh, it's like uh, you come back, and it's almost like you were never uh, never there or never gone. You know, just, you're, a, you're a cog in that machine. So Absolutely. Got, friends Absolutely. outside of law enforcement is key. So, uh, Kevin, where can people find out more about you, learn more about what you're currently doing? Uh, they can go on to my website. At, at Pivotal Points, so it's um, www.pivotal-points.com. We'll uh, post a link there to uh, your website, of course, in the show notes as well. So if people are out and about driving or whatnot right now and they can't uh, go there right now, they can always go to the squadroom.net for your episode, and I'll post the links to your, you know, your book um, and um, and your website as well. And then of course your TEDx talk, which is fantastic. I highly recommend that to everybody. Um, any other, uh, the last thing I want to ask, any other um, tools, resources that you want to direct people towards that you uh, endorse or enjoy? Oh, there's a, a number of things. Um, a pet. You know, I've, I have, I bought my first, I can't even say about it, first small dog. I've had big dogs all my life, but now I'm gone a lot. So my girlfriend's here by herself. And so we have just, you know, a, a, a couple of chihuahuas. And yes, I, I bow my head and I go, yep, we have chihuahuas. <laughs> but things like that, mm -hmm. it's a known fact. It's, it's proven that just being with your dog 10, 15 minutes reduces your stress. These are the type of things that I want folks to look into. Whatever that is, whether you're on a cockatiel or, whatever, you know, go camping, get out, experience life. We love to do our job, but there's other things besides that. There really, really is. And don't let time pass you up. Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Do it. Yeah. Do it. And if you're suffering, man, it's a human thing. It's a human deal that we go through. You know, get some help. Talk to somebody. You'll have support. You will have support. Absolutely. Kevin, thanks for your time. Appreciate you being with us today. Uh, the book is Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair. Uh, I think... Um, you, your story, your TED Talk, your willingness to be out there with a lot of these things and talk about these things, uh, I think you don't like the word save, but I think a lot of officers can be saved by this material that you put out there. And uh, thank you for your service to, to all of us who are, still, uh, who, are, who are still strapping on a vest every day. Well, thank you, sir. Be safe, and I wish you the very best. Thanks, Kevin.
All right, thanks for listening to The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation with Sergeant Kevin Briggs, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It really helps us spread the word of the show and stroke my ego. If you heard something today that you know a friend or a loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show. You can go to thesquadroom.net and email this episode directly to somebody, this specific episode. So if you know someone struggling with something and you know someone who would get some value out of this, you can email it right to them. What you do, go to the link, click on this episode, scroll to the bottom, and you got all your social media shares and email shares right there at the bottom. To keep up to date with the show, you can text the Squadroom, all one word, to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list directly from our phone, from your phone, not our phone, it's yours. Uh, of course, you can do that too at thesquadroom.net. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squad Room for updates. And join our Facebook group. Go on to Facebook and search The Squad Room Podcast group and it'll pop up. It's a closed group for law enforcement supporters and members where we can uh, share ideas, ask questions, get some advice. And it's a great, uh, it's really a growing group of people who are very supportive of each other. It's fantastic. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the show how you can support the show through Patreon. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Uh, what you can do, if you choose, if you get some value out of the show and you want to find a way to contribute back, you can select a donation of your choice uh, and uh, on a per-show basis, and you can cap it at whatever donation you choose, uh, whatever level you choose to per month, and uh, it helps support the show. It goes towards server space and web, web space and equipment and the travel and some of the stuff that goes to the show. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash the squad room, uh, to make a donation and help us cover the expenses, expand the reach of the show. And uh, if you give a donation of $5 or more uh, per episode, I'm going to give you a shout-out like I did at the beginning of the episode to those people here. I'll do it again here, too. Thanks to Redman's Kyle Campbell, Matt Kinney, Baxter Clark Troutman, and a few, quote-unquote, anonymous donors who uh, have been very supportive of the show. Until next time, take care of each other, please, and stay safe.